Support for My Fellow Kansans was provided by the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, working to improve the health and wholeness of Kansans since 1986 through funding innovative ideas and sparking conversations in the health community. Learn more at healthfund.org. This is our wheat crop here on the right. This is a, a part of our corn crop on the left here. Uh-huh. So about how many acres do you have planted in wheat? We will harvest 4,000 acres of wheat. And we have 2,800 in dryland corn. And um, I think it's about 3,200 in, in Milo. Don Heineman is driving me around his western Kansas farm. It's big, 14,000 acres. That's about 22 square miles. Still, he says he's always on the lookout for more land. When you have opportunities for growth, um, you'd better grab them if you, if you can handle it. So farming, as much as anything, is a volume business these days, which is, again, why you take advantage of every opportunity you can to get bigger? Absolutely, yes. Um, there are efficiencies in size that, um, um, in ways it's unfortunate that that's, that's the truth of, of how it is. There are economies of size and there are pressures to get bigger or get out. Not only is Heinemann's farm massive, so is the legislative district that he represents as a moderate Republican. It covers all of eight sparsely populated counties in west-central Kansas and part of a ninth. In the eyes of some, Heinemann is part of the problem, part of the big farms getting bigger trend that is hollowing out rural America, Kansas, and the Plains states in particular. But as the leader of a committee of state lawmakers looking at how to save dying communities across the state, he could also be part of the solution, if there is one. I'm Jim McLean, and this is My Fellow Kansans, a podcast from the Kansas News Service. In this episode, we'll explore how generations of change in agribusiness, notably the trend toward bigger farms manned by fewer farmers, drive the exodus from rural Kansas, and talk with people involved in the struggle for survival about what can or should be done to reverse those trends. God knows that selling to the commodity markets for weed and corn and soybeans is a a losing game right now. So something's going to have to shift pretty drastically, even for uh, the large-scale industrial farms to to survive. If you talk to that 12,000-acre farmer, he's going to tell you, well, I'm sustainable if I can farm next year and I can sell off the majority of my grain and, um, you know, put food on the table and buy next year's seed. But can they do that forever? You know, eventually you're gonna run up against a wall where you can't buy enough land to keep that model sustainable. You know, we had a neighbor that, that, that raised a family of three kids, there was five of them, on 160 acres on a quarter of ground. Can't happen today. You may have 10 quarters of ground and you may only be the one person. But is that, is that so wrong? The world is growing. And the world will always be hungry. And I mean, being raised on a Kansas wheat farm, I mean, that's part of our, our pride, uh, that, we, that we do help feed the world. That, that's part of our calling. That's the, the calling of Kansas farmers. I think a farmer's job is to feed his family and his community. Reality has dictated some of this change. And so you can dream about the past and how nice it would be, but we have to adjust. It's a debate that's been playing out for a long time. Starting, says Kansas State University environmental historian Jim Chereau, with policies that encouraged Kansas settlers to plow up the prairie and put it to, quote, productive use. This is an extractive economy. It's not a manufacturing one. You take things out of the ground and 
and you put it someplace else. That mindset has often led Kansas wheat farmers in particular to plant fence row to fence row to maximize their profits. Like in the early 1900s when prices were high, leading into and coming out of World War I. A documentary produced by the federal government during the Great Depression noted how modern agriculture could feed the world, but dramatically change the land and the communities rooted in the plains. It's the story, Chereau says, of the plow, the prairie, and eventually the dust bowl. A hundred million acres. 200 million acres, more wheat. Baked out, blown out, and broke. The sun and winds wrote the most tragic chapter in American agriculture. The imagery in there is um, really stark. In one scene, you see um, tanks crossing uh, the trenches in Europe during World War I. And then you see this mass array of um, tractors crossing the plains, harvesting wheat. In the 1980s, university researchers Frank and Deborah Popper entered the debate, triggering a political dust storm with their idea to return vast expanses of the plains to the buffalo. They contended and insist they've been proven right that continued population declines would make life in rural places less and less realistic. So they proposed using that increasingly empty landscape to create what they called a buffalo commons, essentially a massive new nature preserve which they said could create ecotourism and boost the rural economy. A lot of people in the plains confronted with our idea have, have thought of it as a sort of catastrophe. And certainly since 1987, when our first piece came out, there have been lots and lots of cases in the Great Plains, elsewhere in the country, also around the world, where it's been shown over and over again that if you really go in for preservation or preservation combined with some form of commodity agriculture – you can get a stable economy that doesn't continually lose depopulation or, or face depopulation, doesn't constantly face environmental threats that are likely to grow. But we think it was plausible in 1987. It feels a lot more plausible today. And we still stand by it. Why, why, is that, why does it feel more plausible today than it did then? Well, because, for example, take one negative example. The, the nation eats lots less beef per capita than it did in 1987. It eats a lot more fish, a lot more chicken, a lot more vegetables. And on the whole, uh, the Great Plains is not competitive once you leave cattle in terms of its agricultural economy, not competitive in, against other parts of the country. I think also that for all the well, let's face it, ridicule that sometimes has been directed against environmentalists, there is a sense that there is some validity to the argument that wasn't quite there in conservative rural places like Western Kansas 30-plus years ago, that there is a sense that maybe the past practices of, of the last century or almost a century need some modification in just – because the economy is changing, the world is changing, people's consumptive patterns are changing. Given current trends, even Don Heinemann says that the population of rural Kansas appears to be, quote, headed to zero. But talking to me as we drove in, around, and through his land just south of Dighton, he takes issue with the contention that farmers like him are to blame, that they're gobbling up land with no thought of the long-term consequences to their neighbors. 
The implication that uh, there's some nefarious plan afoot, that uh, it, it's these evil mega agribusiness people that are, that are shutting down small towns. That's not true at all. The people that are, that are taking opportunity and growing their operations don't want to see their community shrink and, and disappear. That doesn't make sense at all. Um, but it's just a natural progression due to economic pressures. You don't feel like you have a choice. You have to get bigger if this farm is going to remain profitable. I want this farm to be here for my son, for my grandsons, and for generations afterwards. Um, when Heinemann left home and headed for college, he had no intention of coming back. But after finishing at KU and earning two graduate degrees from the University of Michigan, he changed his mind. It was just the pull of the, the farm, the pull of the rural life that uh, convinced me that, you know what, I need to be back home. I mean, are you glad you came back? And is, it, is it a fulfilling life? It is. It is. I'm, I'm really happy that I'm here. Um, but again, part of that is my son coming back home. About the time he was coming back home, I was starting to feel burnout, uh, starting to lose interest in, in staying on the cutting edge of what was going on. Um, but his, his return just re-energized me. And, and uh, as I say, he's, he's type A and, and a very driven personality. And I'm along for the ride now. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoy it. Heinemann jokes about his son Andy's penchant for technology remembering a time when he was out on the tractor in a field far from the house and stopped to relieve himself. Andy, who was using an app to track the quarter-of-a-million-dollar piece of machinery, called immediately, wanting to know why Don had stopped. Don didn't even have a chance to climb back into the cab before his cell phone was ringing. Kidding aside, Heinemann says such recent advances in technology and machinery have made him a better, more efficient farmer and a better steward of the land. Better because he's bigger and can afford the tools of precision ag. All of our land today is grid sampled in the spring on a fairly fairly tight grid. Those samples are analyzed for nutrient content and then a prescription map is developed for each field um, that tells us how much phosphorus and how much nitrogen to apply for whatever crop we intend to plant. It's always been a science. You use the term precision out agriculture. What does that mean? It means as we run through the field with the sprayer or the planter, um, that prescription is loaded into the, the auto steer GPS unit and it's constantly adjusting the amount that we're applying of phosphorus or nitrogen uh, based on what the map tells us is needed at that particular point in the field. Turning back toward the house, we spot Heinemann's dog. He's racing alongside in the dust kicked up by the truck. That is a fast dog. He's hoping he's going to get a ride, <laughs> but he's not, not today. My gosh, look at that stamina. <laughs> Continuing our conversation inside over glasses of iced tea, Heinemann admits to being uneasy about how changes in the ag economy are remaking the rural landscape. In a way, we're part of the problem. We are, I have to admit that. Um, and yet economic forces are, are really pushing us in that direction. If we want to continue to survive as a farm, we have to do that. The trend toward bigger farms, he says, can't and shouldn't be reversed. I came across this statistic just recently that in the U.S., 100,000 farms produce 75% of all ag sales. 
it takes 1.93 million to produce the other 25%. Explain that to me. Most of the production comes from... Farms like yours. Farms like mine or bigger that some folks would call industrial farms. They're more efficient. They have found new markets that are, that are only available with size. And think about this. At the time that, that production agriculture is moving that way, look at what we have to deal on the input side. John Deere dealerships have, have consolidated. Farm cooperatives continue to consolidate. Ag lenders are consolidating on a regular basis. Seed companies consolidate. Everyone that we deal with is going through the same process of either getting bigger or getting out. So it's, it, those economic forces are there. And I, it, it bothers me to some extent that what we are doing personally on our farm is in a way contributing to the decline of the local community. But it's a matter of self-preservation. You either do that or you're one of the ones that eventually gets out. I want to go back to that question about the efficiency. And, and you don't think we should go back, nostalgic as some people are for it, to the old way of doing agriculture, a lot of medium-sized small farmers. I don't, and I don't think we should. Hmm. There is an inherent inefficiency in smaller-sized operations that I don't think the world can afford. That would also suggest that we can't afford to keep all these small communities alive either. That there's an, there's an inefficiency in just having them on the map and having to build roads to them and having to build water treatment plants. I would concede that, and I think that's part of the conversation that is looming for all local communities and their elected officials of what's your future and how do you deliver the necessary governmental services at a reasonable cost to the people in your district? The extent that your, that your Rural Revitalization Committee and the Governor's Office of Rural Prosperity might be able to do some real good will to some extent depend on how much urban Kansans want to subsidize the effort, right? That is true. It is absolutely true. We recognize that um, in raw numbers, Johnson County is the economic engine of the state of Kansas, and they pay a disproportionate share of, of the taxes in the state. And part of those taxes go to support rural Kansas. Schools, roads, any number of different things. Exactly. But if we do nothing and let rural Kansas continue to decline, then that burden on the taxpayers in, in urban Kansas will only increase unless they're willing to just cut rural Kansas loose and say, we're done with you. Survive on your own. Are you concerned at all that urban count, your urban colleagues in the legislature aren't going to buy into that? Yeah, I have some concern about that. Uh, their attitude legitimately could be, why should we care what's in it for us? Uh, but I think the tax issue and, and uh, employee base that we, we bring to the urban areas, I think that's, those are legitimate. But aside from that, we're all in this together. We're all Kansans. We all share the same values for the most part. Um, and it's just unrealistic and, and unthinkable that urban Kansas would say, solve your own problems, rural Kansas, we're done with you. 
unthinkable to those who live in rural Kansas, but over time, maybe not to taxpayers in the state's growing urban and suburban centers. Heinemann's arguments aside, there are people working to stop the large-scale takeover of agriculture. I think that the future needs to look very different than the present. That's Mary Fund. She runs the Kansas Rural Center, a nonprofit group dedicated to advancing, quote, a diversified food and farming system that is ecologically sound, economically viable, and socially just. Put another way, not giant farms like Heinemann's, instead smaller farms and more farmers. Restoring Balance Fund says to save rural communities from extinction. If you look at agriculture right now, the farm economy is uh, in the tank. Producers of all sizes are finding it very difficult to make a living. Uh, crop insurance payments and some of the, the tariff bailouts and so forth. I think that the future is going to have to be farmers taking control back. You're up against global forces. So what makes you optimistic that you can change things? Whether I'm optimistic or not is, depends on what day you ask me. <laughs> I, you know, I fluctuate. I think it would be a really sad thing if we end up with, you know, six farmers per county, all these communities dry up. Um, yeah, it could happen. And I think that, that what is, makes me optimistic is there's a, a drive in human beings to have that meaningful livelihood. And I think farming is one of the best ways to do that. I talked to Mary in Emporia. We chatted outside on a pleasant summer evening after she had finished talking to a group of farmers about how they could improve their fortunes by diversifying, growing specialty crops, and marketing them directly to consumers. One of the featured speakers at that meeting was a farmer named Gail Fuller. He was all in with commodity agriculture when he stepped up to help his father run the family farm in the 1990s. Not anymore. He's checked out of that system, which he says is a trap for farmers. Uh, my contention is we've been sold a bill of goods, and we've been sold this bill of goods for so long we've bought into it. We've been told for so long we've got to feed the planet and up production, and we're really good at what we do. We're doing it at the expense of the, of the climate, the environment. We're doing it at the expense of our, the chance of our kids and grandkids taking the farm over from us. And who sold farmers that bill of goods, and why? Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when Earl Butts and, and President Nixon told us to farm fence row to fence row. And the farm bill that come out of that and, and the boom that come out of, out of that in the 70s is we were told to go big or go home and diversity wasn't a good thing. Become a specialist, you know, grow one or two things. And the 70s were really good times. But what did that lead into? The 80s didn't turn out so well. About six years ago, after some financial setbacks triggered by a lengthy dispute over crop insurance, Fuller made some big changes. He got out of the commodity business and he shrank his farm to a fraction of its former size. So uh, today we are, uh, we're a very diverse operation. We've planted most of the farm back to perennial grasses. We are still growing a little bit of grain on the farm, and most of that is just for our own use, for, for pigs and chickens. And I've become, instead of a commodity farmer, I've become a, a uh, direct marketer. I've learned, learned how to do marketing, learned how to talk to my customer, meet my customer. We've got our own label, selling grass-fed uh, meat and direct-to-consumers in Kansas City, Lawrence, and Emporia. So are you, are you doing better economically now because of these transitions and because of the changes you've made than you would be doing if you were still a straight commodity farmer? 
Yeah, we are. We, we turned a profit last year. Um, well, it was a nice feeling. Everybody hates paying income taxes. I actually look forward to it after being beat up for, for 10 or 15 years the way I was. I get a little pushback because people think I want to go back to 40 acres and turn off electricity and farm with, with horses. No, I, I, I think technology is a wonderful thing when it's used correctly. Farms today are so razor thin on their margins. How many farms are going to be left? How many farmers are going to be left in Kansas in another 25 or 50 years? Uh, and then how many rural communities will there be? Gail Fuller endured years of financial stress as a commodity farmer and now believes he's on a more sustainable path. But ag economists say it's unrealistic to think that all, even most, struggling Kansas farmers will follow that path. Federal programs reward the growing of commodity staples, wheat, corn, soybeans, and sorghum, making it risky to convert to non-program crops. Given the vagaries of weather and markets, risk has always been a part of farming. But after years of prices falling short of covering soaring land, equipment, and input costs, an increasing number of farmers are growing desperate. Concern that despair could be connected to an increase in suicides in northwest Kansas, a Hayes-based mental health center reached out specifically to farmers to alert them to the crisis counseling services it offers. That concern is well-founded, says Onega farmer John Blasky. Fearing the loss of more of his shrinking family farm to creditors, Blasky says he's struggled with thoughts of suicide for years. Oh, yeah, that's... Something that occurs every day. It's just, it's just, it's hard to get it, get rid of it. Yeah. There's not a day goes by. Calls to a psychologist in Iowa who specializes in counseling farmers, Blasky says, helped him through some pretty dark days. He's helped me a lot. What, what does he tell you that helps? I guess don't give up. You know, that's my biggest thought for anybody else. One of the things that keeps keeps me going here is our 14 grandkids and and uh, that's what helps keep me going yeah so when when you start feeling despair like there aren't any other options you think about them and that literally gives you a reason yeah. to keep going yep you can't imagine how much stress there is it just especially if you lose the family farm and just when we lost ours, you know, it felt like I was a failure, but there were things that happened that was beyond our control. Commodity prices that are up one day and down the next, depending on a host of factors beyond their control, are stressing lots of Kansas farmers. And that has them looking for profitable alternatives to commodity crops, specialty crops for which there is or might someday be high consumer demand. Because since there are no pesticides, that are labeled for the use in, in hemp crops, all right? We need to think like organic farmers. Farmer Bobby Gabriel is sitting in a classroom at America's Hemp Academy, situated in a DeSoto strip mall. He's listening to an instructor talk about how to grow industrial hemp, a crop legalized by the 2018 Farm Bill for use in developing products like CBD oil. Overlapping strategies, each of which would be incapable of completely controlling the pest on its own. But when the it's a learning process. You know, I do. I know how to raise corn and soybeans. Hemp is a brand new deal to me, so it's trying, like trying to teach an old dog new tricks. But uh, we're learning as we go, and so far, it's looking pretty good. I hope there's a future to it, and I hope there's some money to be made. Uh, at least, you know, make a decent living at it.
I mean, like I said, we've made a decent living at farming, but it ain't always been easy. But given that learning curve, Gabriel is taking a cautious approach. He's got a pretty big farm near Eudora, but he's growing just a small test plot of what he hopes will someday be a lucrative crop. There's no way I'd want 6,000 acres of hemp. The 40 acres that we're working with, all the manual labor, it's, it's a plenty. Now as technology changes and we figure out different practices, another adding on more acreage next year is a good possibility. Even if industrial hemp takes off as the technology improves and market demand increases, it isn't likely to change farming's big picture. What's starting as boutique farming will become industrial. And when that happens, the small farmers who saw hemp as a lifeline crop will still have to get bigger or get out. So what does that mean for the small communities tied to the ag economy? Well, Don Heineman says they'll have to reinvent themselves. Some communities will look at the facts and say, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and get busy and change things here. Other communities will will be fatalistic and say, well, that's just the way it is. We can't do anything. And eventually that community will cease to exist. Emerging research says that rural communities really can't do much to turn around the generations-old trends that are shrinking their populations. But it suggests they can continue to be attractive places to live, even as they shrink. More about that next time on My Fellow Kansans. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. Jim McLean reported, wrote, and hosted the podcast. He also crisscrossed thousands of miles around the state to record dozens of conversations with his fellow Kansans. Scott Cannon and Suzanne Hogan edited the podcast script. Scott also edited digital stories, Jim wrote, that appear at ksnewsservice.org. There are some great photographs of Kansas and Kansans there, shot primarily by Chris Neal. Ben Stanton worked as field producer, researching, interviewing, and organizing the recordings you just heard. I'm Beth Golay. I worked with Luann Stevens and Ben in the audio production. Primary Color Music composed our theme song, and other music you heard during the season came from Free Music Archive. Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Event planning and social media promotion came together only with the help of Grace Lotz, Michael Russo, and Sarah Jane Crespo. The documentary, The Plow That Broke the Plains, was produced by Per Lorenz for the Farm Security Administration in 1936. The 25-minute film is in the public domain, and you can watch it in its entirety through many sources, including the FDR Library or publicresource.org. This concludes Episode 2 of the six-episode season. Look for Episode 3 of My Fellow Kansans in one week. And remember, if you want to support work like this, please contribute to the public radio station in Kansas you listen to most.